It is January 1st, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. We start a new year remembering some of our favorite moments of 2023 here on Ozarks at Large, including a major archaeological dig. This site probably begins late in the Paleo-Indian period, about 10,000 years ago. A podcast about polo shirts and chinos. The story of preppy clothes, I think, is perhaps the most important American fashion story. I'm kind of shocked. And a discussion about the loss of the monoculture. I think it's both a good thing that we have so much pop culture that can appeal to lots of individuals, um, but I also think that it's affected the way we talk to each other in ways that aren't necessarily great. That's all ahead on today's show. First, the news from NPR. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown, performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, January 1st, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. feels very satisfying that the new year starts on a Monday, at least for me personally. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville. In our second half hour today, a conversation with Avery Truffleman. Her podcast, Articles of Interest, produced a seven-part series called American Ivy that looks at the timeless style of preppy clothing and the unexpected twists and turns that kept the fashion trend fresh. First, though, a meeting was held by the Arkansas Department of Transportation in April of last year to discuss widening a state highway through Washington and Benton County. Work began soon thereafter, and artifacts of an archaic indigenous tribe were unearthed. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich was invited to the dig site to join the archaeology team and brought us this report. In a narrow, forested, spring-fed valley along Clear Creek, a team of archaeologists slowly uncover long-buried structures and artifacts inside a hand-dug pit. Jack Rossin, senior archaeologist at Chronicle Heritage, headquartered in Memphis, says his firm was hired by the Arkansas Department of Transportation to investigate this site in phases in advance of a planned highway expansion. Yes, they do shovel testing in the phase one, and the shovel tests produced hundreds of artifacts in these small shovel tests. And then when we did phase two, we came up with thousands of artifacts. And now we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of artifacts. Two archaeologists use trowels to carefully scrape dirt off the surface of a stone hearth long buried in this place. Nearby, two more team members remove centuries of topsoil from another section to explore what's beneath. The excavation measures 60 square meters and is marked with stakes and strings into research units. Every bit of black earth removed during the dig is loaded into buckets and carefully sifted through large wood-framed screens. So they're screening here, which means they're pulling out everything from firecracked rock to small flakes, which are the waste product of making stone tools, to the actual stone tools themselves, to house daub, the clay that was smathered 
that was smeared on top of the houses to whatever else we find. Rawson says the team's also finding lots of stone projectiles and tools from various eras. This site probably begins late in the Paleo-Indian period, about 10,000 years ago. Then you have the early archaic, and then the middle archaic, which is about six or 7,000 years ago. And then there's the late archaic, and then it switches to the woodland period, and that's when pottery begins and farming begins. We don't have a lot of that here. We do have a little bit of the late prehistoric or the Mississippian, who are the mound builders, who are only about 500 to 1,000 years ago. Radiocarbon testing will confirm the age of the materials unearthed from this site. What, what makes the site significant is not really the artifacts, but the structures, the house floors, the posts, the fire hearths. So we have evidence of the actual structure of the community, not just artifacts, and that's pretty unusual for this age. If the radiocarbon dates turn out the way I think they will, then there's very little to compare it to. Evidence shows the various sized dwellings were framed with log posts clad in river cane and covered in clay to seal out water. The encampment was built above Clear Creek's floodplain, which protected the remnants from being lost to erosion under this farm field for centuries. We dug a site 30 miles from here that was a companion site, and it did not have preservation of house floors and fire hearths like this site has. Rawson walks over to a folding table and opens a binder filled with the team's daily handwritten records and drawings of found structures. The pages are muddy. Well, we have different houses, small, circular, sleeping huts. We have one structure that looks longer, maybe it's 40 or 50 feet long, that was a communal cookhouse. And we have a lot of posts, a lot of fire hearths, and I'm still trying to have to figure out which hearths go with which house floors because there, there's one house floor on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. This base camp is among a constellation of prehistoric camps and bluff shelters on the Ozarks, Rossin says, continuously rebuilt over millennia until that lifeway was abandoned between 900 and 1100 A.D. Over centuries, the people hunted bison and eastern elk deer and bear, and gathered seasonal wild grapes and berries, tree nuts, herbs, and plants. Rawson dumps one of dozens of white polyethylene storage bags containing freshly excavated artifacts onto a folding table. Each bag is meticulously marked by date, inventory, number, excavation unit, and depth. Some artifacts are wrapped in aluminum foil to protect surface sediments for testing. Uh, let's see. I wanted to show you this in particular because this is that, I was talking about this mud daub quite a lot. You can see there's the wall of the house. So that would be the interior, that's, that's the smooth wall. And you might be able to detect fingerprints in... Maybe. Certainly the cane impressions are in here in some of them pieces. So what would happen is this thing, the, the mud dog could be over the roof, it could be over the walls. When these huts burned or collapsed, that roof and all that mud just goes everywhere. And it's fired because, you know, it'd be, it would be exposed to the sun for 15 or 20 years, the life of the house. 
and that would kind of sun that would sunbake the daub. This archaeology team has endured extreme summer heat and heavy rains to remain on schedule to complete excavation by the end of this month. Osage tribal leaders have consulted with State Department of Transportation officials in advance of the project. All artifacts will be transported to Chronicle Heritage Headquarters in Memphis to be washed, sorted, analyzed, and cataloged. Rawson will write up findings in a technical report, as well as a book chronicling what could be a landmark expedition. But he also plans to author a special pamphlet to share with the local residents here. The community's been really supportive. They bring us brownies and cookies and salsa and guacamole and donuts and everything there. Pizza, they're fantastic. The the local people have been wonderful to us. The curated collection, Rawson says, will be returned to the landholder to keep or donate. The excavation site, however, will not be preserved. The Arkansas Department of Transportation plans to bulldoze it, as well as the historic stone farmhouse nearby, to build a roundabout as part of a local highway improvement project. Yeah, so it is sad that the site will be destroyed by the construction project, but it's also nice that we get to investigate the site and learn about it and tell the story first. Radiocarbon test results confirming the age of this prehistoric Ozark base camp will be revealed tentatively this autumn. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Later on our show, NPR's Aisha Harris talks about her book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. The way I approach pop culture, especially pop culture of my past and the things that um, I've consumed many times over, is sort of always wrestling with how it makes me feel in that moment. And it's almost always different. Like, even, even if I still enjoy it, still love it, Oftentimes I will go back and I will, you know, rewatch Sex in the City, which I mentioned a few times in the book and be like, oh, man, this doesn't hold up as quite as well as I remember it being. That's later on today's Ozarks at Large. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh. Okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large, A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. Nearly every Monday on the show, Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History joins Kyle Callums, my co-host, to go through the archives of KATV from Little Rock and discuss and remember the coverage of events as well as the people of Arkansas. Today, we'll hear Kyle and Randy talking about a legend of sound from Arkansas. And uh, a scientist in his right mind would... uh settle in Hope, Arkansas, and start building the world's finest speaker. Well, it, uh, that catches the eye, and then we start talking about speakers. This is Ozarks at Large. 
I'm with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, welcome. Thank you. Whose voice was that? That was a man named Paul Klipsch, which if you uh, listen to music, if you are an audiophile at all, you know that name. They're some of the greatest speakers in the world. Among audiophiles, I mean, it's a... It's one of those golden names. It's a kind of speaker I've never had and I've always wanted since I was a kid. And most people I have found out since I was telling people around the station the last couple of days that this is who we were going to talk about this week, you and yeah. I. And they knew the name, but they didn't know there was an Arkansas connection. Right. And there's a huge yeah. Arkansas connection. Um, Paul Klipsch. Uh, who invented the Klipsch horn, which mm-hmm. was uh, leaps and bounds above anything that was being designed or manufactured at the time, um, started in Hope, Arkansas. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Hope. Well, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Mike Huckabee. Yeah. Yeah. Mac McClarty. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And my, my great aunts. There you go. Because, well, one of them taught Bill Clinton oh, and Mike right. Huckabee. That's right. And Mac McClarty in kindergarten. Did she have Paul Klipsch in kindergarten? No. Okay. He was a little, but she knew him. <laughs> okay. Because I, I asked him when I was a teenager, do you know this, Bobby? And they said, yeah. I think they described him as sort of an odd bird. All right. You know, they said they see him around town. Real nice fellow, but they just said he was a little... Eccentric. Well, he started this career when he was a teenager, right? Yeah, he made his first speaker uh, when he was 14, I believe. And he made it out of a a mailing tube Mm -hmm. and some headphones. And, you know, he was born in, like, the turn of the century, 1904. Okay. And so he invented this little speaker as a kid before there was even radio. Oh. It was a year before the first public radio broadcast. Okay, so he's doing this at a time when Thomas Edison is an international figure and working right. with audio. Yeah. Right, he's, yeah, yeah it, it hasn't been that long since the phonograph, right. Victrola, right. Uh, was out. And, you know, it had that very tinny sound. Mm-hmm to it and he was an engineer all of his life and decided uh, that he would put his efforts his genius he was considered a genius but towards audio and improving sound well how do you get because he's not a native arkansas how do you get to hope well during the war he was stationed in hope they had a the second a, world war yes yeah. world war ii um because in the 20s, or the 10s, 20s, and 30s, uh, he was an engineer. He was building radios. Uh, he even did a stint down in Chile uh, working on electric locomotives. But that's where he first got the ideas for the sound, and we'll talk about that. Because it all has to do with horns mm-hmm. and the technology that, that he did there. But... Um, he was stationed in Hope. There was a proving ground there. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I mean, I think they still find ammunition oh, from wow. where they had, uh, you know, artillery. 
practice mm-hmm. and that sort of thing down there. But um, he uh, he stuck around in hope, and there was of course surplus buildings and land, and he he bought some and started his factory there in 1948. Okay. So let's fast forward to 1989. I'm at KTV, and we lined up a day to to spend and hope with him at his, at the time, was a fairly small factory. I mean, it was just there in hope. But uh, Susan Rosgen and uh, reporter, anchor, and photographer and I went down there, spent the day with him, got a complete tour. And um, this was, uh, gosh, he would have been 85 at the time. And this is how Susan sort of describes him in her report. In some ways, Paul Klipsch reminds you of the professor you had in college. So brilliant that you were always hopelessly lost. That's an early crossover network which tells the low frequencies below 400 hertz to go to the woofer and the frequencies above 400 hertz to go to the tweeter. Do you think people appreciate all the sophisticated principles that go into these? Probably not, but they appreciate the lack of distortion or the absence of distortion that results from using a horn. I'm talking about Paul Klipsch this week. And you heard him mention the horn. Yes, yes. So from what I can tell, I have no engineering degree. I really don't know that much about speakers either. But from what I can tell, it's the the horn and the size of the horn, the length of the horn, that has to do with the reduction of distortion. That's about as far as okay. I can that's take good. It. That's good. But um, you know, he had first used. I mentioned he worked on uh, electric locomo- locomotives down in Chile. Mm-hmm. Well, he heard in the I guess the railroad yards over their loudspeakers. It was a horn coiled up in a box, and it was a basically just a, a loud announcement speaker. But that sort of gave him this idea to put it in his speakers. What's missing in a clip horn is the uh, distortion. Uh, in other words, the uh, what was missing in the uh, uh, early speakers was the free, uh, lack of freedom from distortion. In other words, something that was there that should not have been. It wasn't something that was missing. It was something that ought not to have been there. All right, so how do they work? Well, it's it's complicated, but Susan Rosgen here, the reporter who went down and we did the story, has kind of a simple explanation of how the speakers work. Now, some people invent out of the blue and uh, create something in a flash of lightning or something or other. It was decades ago that Paul Klipsch made a name for himself by perfecting the audio concept that makes Klipsch speakers among the best in the world. Oh, there's a company on the cutting edge in England and a couple of other companies in this country that turn out a lot of speakers too. But competition? Well, to be grammatical about it, I'd like to say there ain't none. In fairness, he's right. There ain't nothing quite like a Klipsch speaker. Without an engineering degree to explain it, here's the basic idea. Inside a traditional-looking speaker, the audio drivers, the things that project the sound, are attached to horns, and it's the horns that reduce the distortion to make Klipsch speakers sound so good. All right, so the longer the horn, the The less less distortion. distortion. That's my understanding of it. And so 
he would fold these horns because you can't have a 16-foot horn in a speaker. So he would fold them, and so a 16-foot one may be four feet if it's folded over, and the sound runs through chambers inside the speaker. I mean, that makes sense, but it sounds also incredibly difficult to make it work and sound as pristine as these guys who work there wanted it to sound like. Well, and that's why they're such great speakers. You know, they were handmade, uh, most of them walnut, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, custom-built cabinets. And, um, well, here's an interview with their chief engineer, Roy Delgado, who started at Clip? She's been there since 1986. The first time I heard a clip short, I was in awe. And when I heard that, I said, that is the closest to life I've ever heard. And not by just a little, by a lot. What was it like spending a day at this factory? Well, when we went down there, uh, it was just the building the one building mm-hmm. that he had bought um, from the military, and um, now it's a museum. Okay. But, um, well, Jim Hunter, who's retired now from Clips, runs this. It's a nonprofit museum. It's in Hope. Hmm. Um, and right across the street, there is still a factory that makes what they call their heritage okay. line of speakers. You know, they have a whole new set of, I guess you would call them more affordable home speakers, but mm-hmm. the original ones, you know, there's the, the names that are burned into my mind as a as a kid, the Heresy, yeah. the La Scala, the Corner Horns, <laughs> yeah, the, cor- the Chorus, they were these fine... When he only had a handful of speakers that they would they would use, you know, now they're sound bars. And, right, 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 uh, right. Yeah, that sort of thing. But um, here's Jim Hunter from the Clips Heritage Museum. Now, this was the Southwest Proving Ground Telephone Exchange Building during World War II. While the building cost $49,000 to build it, Paul stuck around after the war and was able to pick it up for just $3,000. It became our first factory, and Paul moved into it May 3rd, 1948. While the majority of the items in the museum are Klipsch-derived, a great many are not. Uh, Paul was very fond of Isaac Newton's quote, If I have seen further than others, it's because I've been standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, Paul used this a lot, and our collection includes a lot of material from the giants, uh, also, some from some competitors. So he was out there in front of that building. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the museum is. Um, at the beginning, you heard him talking about all these parts of a speaker. Mm-hmm. Well, that was actually just outside of his office. It's now part of the museum. Okay. okay. So um, you have, as, as he said, Klipsch materials and then... Technology that preceded, and even some of the competitors, according to you know Jim Hunter. So I'd like to go down there and see. I would love to go the down museum. There. Yeah, but one of the craziest things that was in there um, was 
an anechoic chamber. You're saying that like I would know what an anechoic well, chamber is. And I and I didn't either, but it is to test sound. Okay. Um it's it's a room that uh it's designed to stop echoes. Basically, it's a not. It's, oh, okay. Yeah, the echoic is. I see. Echo, so it's basically a an isolated soundproof room. Ah. And I went in there, and they closed me in, and it was so <laughs> quiet I could hear my heartbeat. Oh, oh, that sounds a little unnerving. Yeah, my stomach yeah. started to growl a bit, and it, it just it was. Almost <laughs> deafening. Does that do? Is that still there? Um, I believe it is. Okay. And it was. It looked like it was. You know, hand built. They would slide the doors, mm-hmm. and you'd get in, and they. Oh. They wow. kind of close you in there. But it was. Yeah, it was fascinating. Well, at the end of the interview, Susan Rosgen asked uh, Klipsch about his legacy. A hundred years from now, looking back, I don't know what people would think about it. I might, be, I might go down in history if it is any uh, as a crackpot. He just shrugged after that question <laughs> and just he didn't care hmm. uh, whether people thought he was crazy or not. It That's probably turns a healthy out, way to go. Well, yeah, and it yeah. turns out he didn't. He died... In 2002, at the age of 98. Wow. So, I mean, he was going strong till he was almost 100 years old. Now, you were talking about the different brands, and, and if you were an audiophile, you know, you would dream about maybe owning the Cliffshorn. That was oh, the yeah. Cadillac, right? Oh, that was— What did it retail for? Well, you know, the Cliffshorn was usually for— you know, big auditoriums yeah. or dance, yeah. but a Klipsch horn will cost you sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars right. a pair. Okay, yeah. Um, but now the very smallest, the home, was called a Heresy, and that's what I always wanted. Mm-hmm. But you know, as a kid, you can't afford thirty-two hundred dollars as a kid no. for a pair of speakers, <laughs> no. and then once you get older. You wonder, do I want to spend $3,200 yeah. on a pair of speakers? So I don't have any yet. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, the Heresy, I always thought it was a strange name. But apparently uh, he was in the design stages since this is the smallest home. Uh, I think he he did some designs that were very unusual. And one mm. of his employees says, gosh, you're uh. committing audio heresy here. And he said, that's a good name. So he called it Heresy. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History with us almost every Monday. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Kyle. I'll see you next week. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Imagine someone wearing an Oxford shirt, chinos, and loafers. First image that pops into your head is likely going to be someone who looks like they just walked off the campus of Princeton University. Preppy, or Ivy League, style gets its name from, well, the style of clothing popularized by Ivy League college students in the post-World War II era. Podcaster Avery Truffleman explores the globalization of this 20th century fashion with her show, Articles of Interest. We start our conversation talking about why she likes to focus her stories on objects as opposed to people. 
talking about inanimate objects is fascinating just because they live so much longer than us. You know, they're they're longer than a human life and they've contained they've seen a lot more than any one individual has. But also the other thing about it is um, uh, the way I put it is when I was a kid, I used to steal the parenting magazines that my mom would get and I would read them to try to like learn her tricks and see what she was using <laughs> on me. And I remember one of them was like, if you want to have an important conversation with your daughter, do it in the car so that you're facing the same direction and it doesn't feel so uh-huh. confrontational. And whether or not it's an inanimate object or an idea or a book, I like talking with people about something else because then it feels like we're facing the same direction and inevitably you know the personal stories and the intimate stories come out but it doesn't feel as direct as asking someone to tell me about their life if we're both talking about an object or a book or an idea it it feels uh feels like we're looking in the same direction yeah it's it's almost like you're talking with someone as opposed to talking at them uh, totally right? totally 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 In the latest season of Articles of Interest, you focused on one specific story about American Ivy. What drew you to this uh, topic specifically? It totally took me by surprise, really. I was going to do... I was going to do one episode about preppy clothes. I was going to do a season. I wanted it to be about nostalgia. And so I was going to make it about different trends, you know, from... I assume we're approximately the same age, like from our childhoods and like bank on some of that millennial nostalgia. And then I was like, oh, the Hollister, the Hollister, you know, polo shirts kind of thing. 100 percent. So I was going to do a story about like Abercrombie and Fitch and that version of preppy clothes. And then when I actually researched where preppy clothes, where preppy clothes really come from, like how old the history is, how global the history is. It was funny. It slowly expanded. I was like, oh, maybe this has to be three episodes. Okay, maybe it has to be five. Oh, my God. It's seven episodes. And I've never done anything serialized before. And the thing I say is, like, I wouldn't do it unless it were, like, necessary. I'm not vamping to fill time. Like, I had to cut a lot of stuff. (laughs) The story of preppy clothes, I think, is perhaps the most important American fashion story. I'm kind of shocked. When I'm working on a story, and I'm obviously not spending quite as much time as you are with, uh, you know, American Ivy, I get hyper fixated on it. And I find myself talking to everyone who is within earshot about this topic that I'm working on. And my barometer of whether a story is actually going to be good is if I can get my wife to ask follow up questions (laughs) on the topic. Um, do you do you have that sort of barometer in your life where you have someone where you can say, okay, if this person wants to know more and they know me personally and they know how fixated I get on something, that they're willing to like ask a follow up? Do you have that sort of barometer in your life? Oh, that's so funny that I I I do that. It's funny. Yes, normally I'm very into talking to uh, my my family. Like I'm really close with my sister and. Like at parties, you know, I mean, because that's the thing about radio. It's such a solo art form where in our clo- our, I'm in my closet recording yeah. and I can't see an audience reaction. So it's really helpful to talk to a wide range of people and assess their reactions. But I have to say it was really discouraging with preppy clothes for a while because I would say, I'm working on this multi-part series about preppy clothes. And people would be like, OK, like not <laughs> interested. And I was like, no, 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 no. And still only be like, I think I only half convinced them. You know, like it's it definitely 
Yeah, I I don't know what ma- there were many moments of doubt. I was like, I don't think anyone's going to be interested in this. But I think it almost felt like the sunk cost theory. It's like, well, <laughs> I read, <laughs> I have read like. I think by the time I read 15 books on it, I was like, I think you just got to see this through. I think you just got to make the thing. Well, maybe let's dig into that a little bit. Why do you think there's such a reticence to talk about preppy clothes? Is there maybe this assumption that like the last thing we need to do is spend more time talking about white Anglo-Saxon people? 100%. (laughs) It's like, okay, we... And also, it's very easy to write off. Right. If you if you think about very simple theories of trend dissemination, it's like, why is this style of clothing so popular? Because people want to look rich and white. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like white supremacy, period. Like you think the story is really simple. Yeah. And in some ways it is like, yes, it started at Princeton because people wanted to look like the rich white kids at Princeton. Like the end, you know, you could say a very simple version of that. But once you start understanding all the many times that it has come back in style and back in style and back in style and arguably is even in style now, even in the era where people don't want to talk about preppy clothes, where they are so over, we are we are so aware of the political implications of, of dressing this way. Like, why do we still like it? What is up with these with these clothes? So I think that's part of why it was easy to write off. Is you, it, It's really easy to give a sort of superficial analysis for its uh, proliferation, but that's only like... A sixteenth of the story, <laughs> right? I mean, that's like a paragraph in 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 all of what you've reported on with this. It probably makes the most sense to start with the book Take Ivy. Can you tell tell me a little bit about this book and its impact on the clothing world globally? Oh man, I'm like, how much time do you have? Well, the story of Take Ivy is really long. It runs throughout the the series, but basically, Take Ivy is a book, a coffee table book, and I think I first encountered it at a J Crew in the Obama era preppy J Crew, you know, like 2012. And it's very strange. It was it was published in uh, 1965 and it's images of young men on American Ivy League campuses, multiple campuses. They go to Dartmouth and Brown and Princeton and Harvard and Yale and you see them uh going to crew practice and lounging on the quad. They're always sort of in motion, like traipsing across the quad. And then the weird thing you realize is that the book was made originally in Japanese for a Japanese audience. And it's this like anthropological study of what American men are wearing on these campuses. And they have all these notes like, oh, the campus is so big, a lot of them use bikes. And like, isn't it interesting how they're not wearing socks with their loafers? Like, what a wild thing. And I mean, it's by many in menswear circles, Take Ivy is considered sort of the Bible of preppy clothes. It's like, oh, this is this is sort of the document because it's done in this anthropological way that no American would ever think to do. Like, you know, it's it's so obvious, like kids on a college campus, why would you document it so so thoroughly. So because no one else had sort of bothered to do it, this has become sort of the de facto example of like, oh, when you want to do preppy right, look at Take Ivy. But the story of Take Ivy is like so much weirder and it's like sort of half staged and it also once had a movie and like an accompanying magazine. It's like it was functionally... Take Ivy was a piece of propaganda by a Japanese clothing company to convince everyone that Americans still dress that way, even in 1965, when they were starting to really not dress that way at all. And that's like the succinct version of what Take Ivy is. And even that's like kind of long. 
You know, I think when Americans think of the 1960s in America, we think of the hippie area. We think of we, we think of tie dye. We think of long hair. We don't think of people in you know Henleys yeah. and chinos and loafers, right? Right. And and that's and that's what is being portrayed in Japan is that this is how Americans dress and it's cool and this is how we should dress, right? Well, it's interesting because you know this is the funny thing about studying the history of fashion is that we think that fashion divides up, in, you know, in our minds we organize them into these neat sort of decades, but it's so amorphous and it's so personal. So in a weird way, like, yeah, people were still wearing like Henleys and and Chinos into the 60s, into the mid 60s, really. But it was about to change. It was about to really, really explode. And the way they were dressing was really different than the way they were dressing in the 50s. But yeah, basically in Take Ivy, they were sort of fudging it and like pretending, you know, they were selectively, I think they were going to like the Young Republicans Club. Like they were finding the bastions of places that were still very committed to the preppy look or then as as it was known as uh, the Ivy look. But then, you know, a few months later after campus, like the Vietnam War was going to break out, like the hippie was about, like they caught the last vestige of uh, widespread preppy college dressing. So that's another, I mean, that doesn't minimize the greatness of the document. It's still an incredible, it's an incredible book still that they like captured this very last gasp of like mid-century collegiate culture. Although you never explicitly say this in the podcast, it's notable that Ivy and preppy, a style named for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant college kids at Princeton, and has long survived as long as it has due in large part to non-white Americans, right? Whether it's uh, Kensuke Ishizu in Japan, an Ashkenazi Jewish fashion designer in the Bronx like Ralph Lauren, or a rapper like Raekwon, Ivy continued to stay cool over generations due to its reiterations, right? And women, uh, that's a huge yeah. thing. The androgyny of preppy clothes was like, Brooks Brothers didn't have a department for women. So women just went in and like bought from the boys section. I mean, that was the amazing thing that all of these like that's the thing I was expecting in this series to be going to New England to interview like people named Biffy in Kennebunkport. But no, the story is very New York. It's very black. It's very Jewish. It's very Japanese. And I think it's just because the style is so like. It's it's so easy to steal and take and morph and so many groups took it and made it their own. And not even one time, like multiple times, especially if you think about the way that black musicians took on Ivy. I mean, it happened in the 60s with like Miles Davis and the Modern Jazz Quartet and John Coltrane. You can see them wearing these like Oxford cloth button down shirts, making them look awesome. And then it happened again in the 90s. And late 80s, where you see like rappers and yeah, as you said, uh, Wu-Tang taking on Ralph Lauren clothes and again, wearing them in this totally new way and bringing it relevance and making it cool. And also, I mean, it's interesting. There's a perfect music metaphor with both of them because the criticism that was leveled against these musicians is like, oh, you're trying to look white. And the example that Jason Jules, the author of the book, Take Ivy, the phenomenal book, Take Ivy, he was like, no, it's... It's in the same way that when John Coltrane covered My Favorite Things, he wasn't trying to make a Broadway musical. He was taking something and doing it in his own way. In the same way that, you know, hip-hop artists take a song and sample it. It's all about, like, the mixing and the blending. 
there's this feeling that happens after you buy a new car that every time you go out on the road, you notice, oh, hey, there's the, I have that car. You, you have that car. I have that car. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have that same feeling after all of this research that you became hyper aware of all of the iterations of preppy clothing as you were walking across the streets of New York? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things is, so I started this, you know, at this point, almost exactly a year ago. And it was really interesting because all these trend forecasters I was interviewing were like, oh, preppy is going to have a renaissance. Like, just you wait. Just you wait. And I mean, it's kind of tricky because, you know, there's a whole lot of discourse around what's in style and what is in trend and like everything's in trend, nothing's in trend, whatever. But I think throughout the whole year, I kept vacillating back and forth between like, oh, I think it's really going to happen. Or like, I don't think it's going to happen at all. But that's the other thing about preppy clothes is it never actually goes away. I mean, if you go to a Banana Republic or a J. Crew or even, you know, The Gap, whatever, I mean, basically they sell preppy clothes. Like that's what mainstream acceptable fashion is. And so in a weird way, yeah, I felt like a fish learning what water is. It's like, oh, this thing that had no name. It has a name. It's it's preppy. And also when you start thinking the way that preppiness sort of turned into punk, it turned into hip hop, it turned into, I mean, so many, so many different things. You can kind of you start you start going crazy. You're like, oh, is it all preppy? Like, is everything preppy? Am I preppy? So, yeah, in a weird way, I started to, like, see my car everywhere. But it's sort of like I'm trying to think of a of a of a metaphor. It'd be like if, I don't know, I started to get too into it. It's like if you looked at other cars that had nothing to do with your car and being like, well, that's kind of like my car because it has like a steering wheel and two lights, you know? <laughs> I started like really stretching it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's 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 clearly just like my car because it has four wheels and it yeah, drives exactly. forwards and backwards. <laughs> exactly, and it like gets me places like my car. Yeah, totally. What surprised you the most in your reporting on this? Well, the Japan story is really surprising, of course. And I mean, you know, I had a lot of personal revelations about this because I always thought that, you know, as I say in the as I say in the series, I always hated preppy clothes. I really didn't identify with them. I thought they represented like everything I hated. And I I was like, oh, they're not me. And so I'm just going to be this anthropologist in this world. But then I realized, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm like a Jewish New Yorker and so much of this history is about like Jews in New York that they're that and it's really interesting. I've talked to a bunch of people and they're like, "Oh, I see myself in this history as well, whether, you know, it's like a super queer history, it's super black." Like they're they're so and it's kind of cheesy American in that way, like, "Oh, it's a, it, there's room for everyone." But I personally I mean, and not just Ralph Lauren like Jews have been making preppy clothes since like 1902 for like a very long time. And so I think that was also part of it is like, oh, this is this belongs in my wardrobe and on my body, too. So I've been dressing preppier. And I have to say, it's really fun to dress preppy because I thought like the other day I was wearing these loafers on the subway and this guy came up to me and was like, oh, I had those in high school. You know, this like big guy with dreads came up to me and was like, I had those in high school. And you just make all these unexpected connections through preppy clothes, and it's cool to see everything in the history and the theory played out in practice when you actually wear these clothes on the street. I mean, people just like them. They're like acceptable clothes that everybody likes. It's really interesting. When we're thinking about reporting and we're thinking about podcasting, where do you find yourself 
drawing the line between objectivity and inserting yourself into the story? Is that something you have? I think it kind of goes back to our, you know, one of our original questions of, you know, we're, we're both facing forward, right, as you're telling the story, but you're also revealing some elements of your own personal life, too. Do you find that hard to do? Do you find that important in your reporting to do? I mean, it's nothing I enjoy doing and I never choose to do it. Like, there's a reason I don't, I never say my, I'm never like, this article's of interest, I'm Avery Truffleman, just because, like, I don't know. I don't think it matters. Like, I don't think you have to care. And I also don't necessarily think you have to say who you are up front and, like, why I'm telling this story, blah, blah, blah. Because I, I don't, th- I think it's way more important that you, like, deliver something to the audience first before you have them care about who you are. So that's why it made sense to reveal it at the end, just like my own personal revelations. And I also think, you know, after you've spent this much time with me, I'm sure you're curious about like what I what I think. If you've listened, you know, if you've listened to six episodes so far, like, <laughs> probably you're like, who is she? I don't personally find it like interesting. I don't, of, of the stories I could tell, talking about myself is probably the least interesting. But if it adds helpful context to the story, then it can be a very useful tool. Like personal reflection can be a very useful tool to help the meat of the story get along. So I don't know. I see it quite rationally and I don't have very strong feelings about it either way. But I think that's also a privilege of like, I don't know, again, not having a lot of like big secrets or anything to hide. I mean, in the to steal a phrase from John Mulaney, I feel like I've been sitting in a room eating saltine crackers for 31 years. I'm like a pretty boring person. So it's uh, it's easy for me to divulge. Why do you think people don't want to know about you? I'm not thing I don't think that they like don't want to know about me, but I think there's a lot of how do I put this? I think there are a lot of shows where where they want to like cash in on that parasocial relationship right away and be like, oh, you know, like t- telling their whole backstory and you know telling some sort of sob story and really getting to know them and like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think maintaining a little bit of mystery is actually useful. I think. People feel really close to Terry Gross, even if they don't know anything about her personal life. So I I just think it's not it's not that I think people don't care. I just don't think it's as necessary as people think. And I think by getting to know like what books I've read and people I've talked to and conversations I've had, that's just as intimate as like learning about, you know, what school I went to or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that uh, it kind of shifts the perspective, right? That for you, the story is the most important part. Totally. That you as a person are not necessarily the most important part, that it's it's about the story you're telling. And, and why why you think it's interesting is, and how you're telling that is more interesting than you and your personal story. Exactly, exactly. Avery, is there anything I missed or anything you want to make sure we think about oh, with this show? Thank you so these are such thoughtful questions. Like thank you so much. It's the it's the greatest gift to be given such attention uh and thought. So thank you so much. No, I think I mean I I always hate when I ask people like is there anything we missed? And they're like, no, but I think we got it. I'm like, no, come on, like dig deep, <laughs> give me a nugget. But I I I this sounds great. Thank you so much. Avery Truffleman is the host and creator of the podcast, Articles of Interest. Speaking of podcasts, the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour, is a delightful dip into the world of what we're watching, reading, eating, and listening to. But regular listeners know it's much more than a catalog of what's hot or not. Each week, hosts and guests go deeper, deconstructing what our pop culture may or may not be reflecting about us or projecting on us. Aisha Harris is a co-host of the show, and she continues that approach in her book, Wannabe, 
Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. Hosoksa Alarjus Kyle Kellams talked with her about the book and asked her about that word toward the beginning of the title, Reckoning. It just felt like the right word because what I, the way I approach pop culture, especially pop culture of my past and the things that um, I've consumed many times over is sort of always wrestling with how it makes me feel in that moment. And it's almost always different. Like it, even, even if I still enjoy it, still love it, oftentimes I will go back and I will, you know, rewatch Sex in the City, which I mentioned a few times in the book and be like, oh man, this doesn't hold up as quite as well as I remember it being. Um, but I still get that same feeling of nostalgia and I still enjoy the banter and everything, but it, but it is still, um, it's always a process. I think engaging with pop culture is a continuous process for me. Um, and that's why I think Reckonings uh, explains that so, so well. We're not going to be able to talk about all the things I would want to talk about this book, but I also love, there's a bit of a discussion about the loss of monoculture, how there used to be things that we all saw and could all talk about it, and whether that's okay or bad or whether we should be concerned about that. Yeah, I I, I come down on the side of I don't think, for one thing, the monoculture was never actually a real thing. I think, uh, obviously, but but I think that there was more of a sense of a, a coming together than there is now. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think it's a, something that we need to be aware of because it it makes uh, it makes us a little bit feistier, I think, and and it makes us interact in ways that are not always healthy, especially online uh, when we're we're talking. I'm talking specifically about like fandoms and quote unquote toxic fandoms of people who are overly zealous and then take out that overzealousness on strangers on the internet. Um, so <laughs> I think I think it's both a, a good thing that we have so much pop culture that can appeal to uh, lots of individuals. Um, but I also think that it's affected the way we talk to each other in ways that aren't necessarily great. You have wonderful chapters devoted to whether it's are we are we too much into nostalgia? Is it is that a bad thing? The history of the black friend and pop culture from Huck Finn on. I get the feeling that one of the hard things for you to do with this book was limit the the mm -hmm. number of chapters and topics you wanted to really go into. Yeah, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a nerd, a research nerd. Uh, I love to take deep dives into you know. Lexus Nexus and and uh, uh, YouTube old YouTube news clips and news clippings. Um, it, it's it, it was hard and I, and but like what I hope comes through in this book is that even though there are lots of rabbit holes that I am am bringing us down, there is sort of a way in which they they all kind of coalesce into a, an understanding of that like everything is connected in a way. <laughs> um, and and the, the challenge for me was just like, okay, how do these connect in a way that will make sense? Not just in my brain, because my brain is always firing at all, all cylinders on this, but will make sense for the reader. And, and I think I pulled it off. Oh, I think you did. I think you absolutely did. <laughs> um, also a great uh, bit that you devote to cancel culture, but I love that you said, no, it's call out culture. And I had yes. I love the difference in that because you point out people who've been quote canceled are still working, are still very much there. Yes. I mean, just this past spring, Johnny Depp uh, premiered in a Cannes film uh, uh feature following, you know, last year his his whole 
debacle with his ex-wife, uh, Amber Heard. And, uh, you know, I, I think that call-out culture is the right word because we are living in a time where anyone can call anyone out. I've been called out online. Anyone who's online is going to be called out at some point. Um, but cancel culture, true cancel culture, is a word that I think is thrown around too, like, too much uh the word cancel and i think that it's important to make that distinction um and i, I think it's it's pretty clear in the book how where i fall on the idea of cancel culture i also like and you quote kenny g you say <laughs> this one part <laughs> kenny g gets it where he he's talking about people who you know defend well, well why his music was polarized and you take it to this bigger thing that sometimes we identify so much with a a piece of popular culture that we're invested in that we take it personally when someone doesn't like it. Yeah. And I think that's something that I've had to myself deal with within myself um, and, and not take things too personally. And I encourage people to not take things personally because just because a critic or another person in your life says they didn't like this one thing doesn't mean that they are saying something about you, unless you, think it's about you. Uh, in that case, maybe you need to do a little bit of self-reflection. <laughs> <laughs> but it's easy to be on either side of that, right? I mean, yeah, we've all absolutely. called people out too. Oh, absolutely. That it That is just human nature. Um, but, you know, there are ways to be more thoughtful about it and not to jump immediately to um, being negative or being angry about things, uh, because that's just not a fun way to live. I think we should all be able to like what we like and dislike what we dislike without uh, feeling as though everyone else has to feel the same way as you do. Finally, I'm a generation or two older than you, have been a pop culture fanatic my entire life, grew up coming home from school, watching Green Acres and reruns on television, mm-hmm. and always wanted to have deeper conversations about popular culture and what how it might be connected to us. But when I was growing up, that was considered not something you did. That was considered low value, low rent. Pop culture was this, quote, real life was over here. I think it's great that we're actually admitting how this can influence us both positively and negatively. Yeah, I'm I'm so grateful to live in a time now where we can take these things more seriously because I really do do think that pop culture is political, always has been, um, but it's perhaps even more so now because sometimes the intersections, the, the the divide between politics and pop culture is so non-existent at this point. You know, when you have conservative talking heads who are complaining about Little Mermaid being Black now, like, there's there's no there's no way to sort of separate the two. And so I think it's it's good that we embrace it. And I think that uh, if we embrace it, we should just be uh, very mindful of how we embrace it. Aisha Harris is the author of the book Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, a listener supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media, the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Kyle Kellums and Randy Dixon. Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Matthew Moore. I hope you'll join me again tomorrow. Until then, be well.